Let us pray together. Father, we do thank you that you sent your son on a mission of love, that he came to seek and save the lost. Father, we are great sinners, but we thank you that you have sent us an even greater Savior. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is greater than all our sins, and he has taken all of our sins onto himself, and he has dealt with them that we might be forgiven and made right with you. Father, may we be encouraged and equipped by this good news today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So today we look at the story of Zacchaeus. Now the story of Zacchaeus is really quite a funny story. You have this little man who is really a big sinner looking for an even bigger savior. And really as you picture what's happening here, it really is quite humorous. You got this short little man who shimmies up the tree to get a good look of Jesus. Then he hurries right back down the tree as Jesus comes to him and says, I must eat with you today. And then as they go off to have their dinner together, the crowd is grumbling. Uh, it, it's just kind of a funny scene. And it's no surprise that the story has spawned children's songs. Uh, it's always been a Sunday school favorite. Uh, you know, kids especially love it. Kids are wee little people, and so they like the story about the wee little man. Uh, that's just how it is. Uh, it, it's just a fun story. But there's more to this story than we might realize at first glance. It's not just a funny story. It's also a very serious story that shows us some really important things. And the key to this story is the same as every story in Scripture. You've got to read it in light of the rest of the Bible and see what connections can be made. We've got to understand this is all part of uh, the one big story that the divine storyteller is giving to us. And it all fits together. And so, for example, we should compare this story of Zacchaeus to the story of another wealthy man who has just come to Jesus in the previous chapter in Luke chapter 18. Uh, because these stories are so close to each other and because they both deal with wealthy men, they invite comparison. And so think about that story in Luke 18. The rich young ruler approaches Jesus just as Zacchaeus seeks out Jesus here. But when that rich young ruler is challenged by Jesus to sell everything, to give to the poor, to join with the band of Jesus' followers, that rich young ruler goes away sad. The cost was just too high for him. He had great possessions. He would not part with them. He loved his money more than he loved Jesus. And Jesus, seeing that in Luke 18, says it is difficult for those with great wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's actually another pretty humorous picture, trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. But Jesus says it's easier to get that camel through the eye of a needle than to get a rich man into heaven. And his disciples are actually shocked by this because they're thinking, well, if the rich can't be saved, those who have such blessings from God, if they can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And that's how that story ends. Now, this story, the story of Zacchaeus, uh, is really, really interesting. Uh, this story is really about God doing the impossible. If the story of the rich young ruler ends with Jesus saying, with man this is impossible, but with God it is possible, Okay, God can do the impossible. That's what the story of Zacchaeus is really about. It's all about God doing the impossible. In this story, Jesus threads the eye of the needle with the camel. 
Here's the camel that gets through the eye of the needle, the rich man that is saved. The story of the rich young ruler ends with sadness. The story of Zacchaeus ends with salvation. As the story begins, we find Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, where, as he has been predicting, and again, as he's just predicted in the previous chapter, he's going to be crucified and then resurrected. And Luke gives us the the details of Jesus' itinerary here. He tells us that Jesus entered Jericho. Now, this is interesting. Jericho has a long and checkered history in the Bible. Uh, Jericho was the first city in the promised land that the Israelites conquered when God said, I'm giving you this land, go in and conquer it. Jericho is the first city that they capture. Of course, they were being led by Joshua. And that's a real obvious connection because Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Uh, Joshua is the Hebrew version. Jesus is the Greek. They would have called in the first century Jesus Joshua. So Jesus is the new Joshua, and he's also going to, to have a conquest of Jericho. Just as Joshua conquered Jericho, so Jesus will also. Only it's going to be a very different kind of conquest. Still a conquest, but a different kind. But here's one connection between them. When Joshua enters the city of Jericho, he converts one person, one very unlikely convert, Rahab. When Jesus, the new Joshua, enters Jericho, he also converts one person, one very unlikely convert, Zacchaeus. Now, who is Zacchaeus? Well, Zacchaeus is a tax collector, but he's not just any tax collector. He is the chief tax collector. He is the head honcho. He's the uh, one who is in charge of all the other tax collectors. Now, you probably already know some things about tax collectors in the first century because they show up so often in the Gospels, but let's, let's think this through here for just a minute. Tax collectors were agents of the Roman Empire. You could say they were part of the ancient IRS, the Imperial Revenue Service. This was their job to collect taxes on behalf of the empire. Of course, all tax collectors were despised. Even today, uh, tax collectors are are not very popular people. Uh, But especially Jewish tax collectors living in, uh, in this region were despised because they were considered traitors to their own people. It's not just that you are working on behalf of those who are going to take some of our income. It's that you are working on behalf of the oppressive pagan regime that is basically holding us captive, that's that's keeping us down. That's how the Jews viewed the Roman Empire. And so for a Jew to become a tax collector and then work on behalf of that pagan empire, well, that's just, that's as low as you could sink. That made you a Benedict Arnold to your own people. You were considered a, a, a traitor to your own nation. Uh, Of course, we're all familiar with examples of politicians who take advantage of their office and use it for personal gain. You've heard that story before, right? And we've all heard that narrative even here in in the news recently. Uh, But that's what tax collectors did. They used their office for personal gain. They could easily uh, charge uh, really whatever they wanted. Uh, Because whatever they charged somebody, if you didn't pay it, they had all kinds of ways of of making life very difficult for you. They could drag you into court. And even if the accusations against you were false, there's a really good chance that the tax collector is going to win his case. This is the kind of thing that tax collectors were known for doing. They would overcharge the people give Rome what Rome required, and then keep the rest for themselves. And again, this is another reason why the commoners hated them. 
The common people knew they were being exploited. They knew who was doing the the exploiting. Uh, Tax collectors had a great deal of discretion. Again, they could really charge whatever they wanted. And and again, they would give to Rome whatever Rome required and keep the rest for themselves. They would just pocket that. And so, of course, tax collectors tended to become very, very wealthy because they knew how to game the system. And, And, of course, this is also because whatever they wanted to charge you, it was backed up with the force of the empire itself. The people had very little recourse. So uh, if you declined to pay the tax collector, he could send Roman soldiers to your door and they might come knock on your door and they might say, hey, this is a really fine house you have here. It'd be a shame if something were to happen to it. They had their ways of getting their money out of you, of getting your hard-earned money turned over to them. In fact, it's interesting. In Luke chapter 3, uh, tax collectors and soldiers both go to John the Baptist. And it's interesting that tax collectors and soldiers are linked there. It's probably because they work together so often. Tax collectors coming saying, this is what you owe. And then if you don't pay, the soldiers coming along and making sure that you pay it anyway, even if you don't want to or you see it as very unfair. In fact, it's interesting, the ancient Roman system was really set up to pit makers versus takers. Jerry Bowyer's written a really interesting book about this recently. The system pitted makers versus takers. The makers were the people who produced goods and services for others, which were then exchanged for money in a free market. Just think of working class, middle class, hardworking type people. They make something, they produce something, they offer some service that people want to pay money for. That exchange takes place, and that's how they make their living. And it's interesting, Jesus never criticizes that. Uh, He never criticizes honest gain through free exchange. Yes, he warns about wealth, but when Jesus warns about wealth, his warnings are almost entirely directed towards those who are takers, not makers, but takers. That is, those who do not make things in order to gain wealth, but those who have the power to take wealth from the makers. Those are the ones who get warned about wealth. And that's why the warnings of Jesus about wealth become more frequent and they intensify the closer he gets to Judea and Jerusalem, because that's where most of the takers are located. That's where they are, the people who have the power to take from the makers, those who can use the power of the state, like like tax collectors, or those who can use the power of the temple, like the priests, those who can forcibly extract wealth from others. Those are the ones that Jesus especially warns about wealth. And so, you know, I I think the, the teaching of Jesus on wealth is often Uh, confused today. Uh, Sometimes people think that when Jesus is warning about wealth, well, what he's really calling for is an expansion of government programs, for example. Well, in reality, what Jesus is doing is he is confronting the people who run those government programs and reminding them of the dangers of wealth, the dangers that their power to take wealth from others, the danger that power brings. He's confronting the takers of wealth, the ruling class who have the power to extract wealth from others. In other words, all of those warnings about wealth are really for people like Zacchaeus. In fact, ultimately, this is one reason why Jesus ends up getting crucified, historically speaking, It's because the economic elites were threatened by Jesus. His teaching was a threat to their political and economic system, the political and economic status quo that protected the the, the takers, that served their interests. 
So for Zacchaeus to come to Jesus, this is, this is something different from what the rest of the economic elite, uh, the, that powerful ruling class, very different from what most of them do. As the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, of course, is very, very wealthy, exorbitantly wealthy. He would have been well-known and widely despised. He's the one in charge of the tax collectors. He's the top of the pyramid. He's in charge of this corrupt system. He is the chief taker. And so if you are a maker, just a hardworking person who's, who's trying to provide for your family, you know, you're one of the makers, and then you see Zacchaeus, he's one of the takers. Well, you don't like him at all. So here's what you have. You've got uh, a, a crowd of people, and they would have viewed Zacchaeus as public enemy number one. They would have seen him as a cheater, an extortioner, a swindler, and a thief. But they also would have seen him as somebody, in, in many cases, to envy. Because here's a man in Zacchaeus who seems to have it all. His great wealth means he has no obvious outward needs. He's got power, status, and money. He's got everything. He seems to have everything you could want. In fact, it's really, really interesting, again, to, to, to compare this story with what comes immediately before it in Luke's gospel. In the immediately preceding story in Luke 18, verses 35 to 43, Jesus heals a blind beggar. That man had obvious needs. He was blind and he was a beggar. He had no eyesight and he had no money. Not so with Zacchaeus. With Zacchaeus, you've got a man who seems to have everything going for him, who seems to have it all together. His life seems well-ordered and put together. He's got power, status, wealth. What more could he ask for? You, you got this sharp contrast between that story and this one. Rich versus poor, seeing versus blind, a man with everything versus a man with nothing. And yet, despite having all of that going for him, Zacchaeus realizes his life is not complete. He realizes he's got a problem. He realizes he really does not have everything. In fact, he realizes he really does have something in common with the blind man. The blind man wanted to see. Most of all, he wanted to see Jesus. Well, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus as well. Now, what prompted this desire to see Jesus? Obviously, Zacchaeus knows there's something wrong with him, and Jesus is the one who can make it right. He's got some kind of sickness, and Jesus is the great physician. He's missing something that Jesus can provide. He wants to see Jesus just like the blind man. Well, how can he see Jesus? How can he have an encounter with the Savior? The crowd is not exactly going to cooperate with him. It's not like they're going to just let Zacchaeus through and go to the front of the line to see Jesus. And Zacchaeus is what we would say today is vertically challenged. Okay? He's short. Uh, so what does he do? He wants to see Jesus, so he runs ahead and he climbs up in a tree so he can catch a glimpse of Jesus. Now, this is really interesting because, again, if you know anything about first century culture, you know that especially dignified aristocratic men in ancient Middle Eastern cultures would not be seen running in public like this and certainly would not go climbing a tree. You know, climbing trees, that's for kids. That's for kids. But maybe that's really the whole point here. Zacchaeus is casting his pride and his dignity aside. 
He's becoming like a, a child. The little man makes himself like a little child. And again, going back to Luke chapter 18, it's as if Luke 18, everything there sets you up for what happens in the story. Go back to Luke chapter 18. Jesus has just used little children as a model for all who wish to enter his kingdom. He's blessed the little children. And in Luke 18, 17, he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not inherit it. You have to become like a child to enter his kingdom. So what does Zacchaeus do here? He makes himself a child. He's already short in stature, but now he runs ahead and climbs a tree like a child. And so Jesus blessing the children in chapter 18 anticipates what he does here, blessing Zacchaeus in chapter 19. Zacchaeus makes himself like a little child. Now again, remember, all of these events happen because history is the unfolding story of the great storyteller. And the great storyteller weaves together events like this one for a purpose. And he records them in his word for a purpose where every historical detail that gets recorded matters. It has a meaning in the story. And so we're told Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree. We're not told Zacchaeus gets up on a rooftop to get a better look at Jesus. We're not told Zacchaeus climbs up on a rock to get a better look at Jesus. He climbs a tree. So we need to ask, why a tree? Well, trees are special in the Bible. Trees have great significance in Scripture. Indeed, the two most important events in all of history, the two most important events in the history of the world took place at trees. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam falls and plunges the whole human race into sin when he seized the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fall of the human race takes place at a tree. And then in Luke's gospel, a few chapters later in this gospel, Jesus is going to redeem this fallen world when he is nailed to the tree of the cross. All of human history pivots around those two events, those two trees. There is a tree of death where sin enters, and there is a tree of life where sins are forgiven. Everything depends on which of those two trees you identify with, which of those two trees you're, you're, you're found standing with. Everything hinges on these two trees. Adam brought sin into the world at a tree. Jesus fulfills his mission of love and salvation at a tree. And of course, trees show up in many other places in scripture. Trees can symbolize people. In uh, Psalm chapter 1, the blessed man, the obedient man, is like a tree planted beside rivers of living water, bearing its fruit in season. Not just persons, but, but, but people groups, nations. In Romans chapter 11, the people of God are symbolized by a tree. The olive tree, the tabernacle and temple, the, 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 the sacred architecture that, that God gave to Israel, the tabernacle and the temple were filled with trees. In fact, you could say the tabernacle was a kind of tree house. Now, yes, the trees had been glorified by being cut down, carved and shaped in various ways, covered with gold. So the trees had been 
glorified, but they were trees nonetheless. And so if you were to go into the tabernacle or into the temple, you're really entering into a tree house, a place made largely of trees and, and filled with trees as well. So the lampstand in the holy place is a kind of golden tree. It's a stylized tree made to look like a tree. The Ark of the Covenant is made of wood. It's a wooden throne for God made of olive wood and covered in gold. To enter the Holy of Holies is to climb symbolically through the cedar and cypress trees to get up to the olive trees because the olive trees are in the most holy place. Uh, the doors and again the Ark of the Covenant all made of olive wood seems to be the holiest tree of all in the Bible's symbolic way of looking at all of this. Images of trees were carved into the walls of the temple. The tabernacle and temple were really just big tree houses in one sense. Uh, they were garden environments and like the Garden of Eden, the original garden environment, these places were filled with trees. In the Old Covenant, trees are places where you go to meet with God. Trees are like miniature towers into the heavens. So we're told that Zacchaeus climbed this tree. In fact, further, we're told that this is a sycamore tree. Uh, now, this is actually a type of fig tree. Tree types, tree names don't necessarily translate all that well. Uh, so, but if you do a little digging, you'll find that this sycamore is actually a kind of fig tree. And so again, I would say Jesus has already anticipated what is happening here. You go back to chapter 13 of Luke's gospel, there is the parable of the fig tree. And there the fig tree symbolizes the nation of Israel. And for three years, the owner of this fig tree has come and inspected it looking for fruit. It has not yet produced any fruit. I think that probably corresponds to the three-year ministry of Jesus inspecting the nation of Israel for fruit that Israel should be producing, fruit that would bring glory to God, that would bring healing to the nations. He comes and inspects the, the fig tree and he finds no fruit on it. He's going to give it a little bit more time, but he's threatening to cut that tree down. So here you've got Jesus. He's going to come to another fig tree. But what's interesting here is that when he comes to this fig tree in chapter 19, he's going to find fruit there. He's going to find fruit in the form of Zacchaeus. He's going to find fruit in the form of Zacchaeus who repents of his sin in all kinds of ways as we're about to see. See, Zacchaeus is doing the right thing. He's right to seek Jesus. He's right to climb the tree. This is the right place to go to meet God. But then something really interesting happens. Up to this point, you could say, really, Zacchaeus has been the seeker. He's the one who's wanted to seek out Jesus. He's climbed the tree as a way of seeking Jesus so he can get a glimpse of Jesus. But now the seeker will become the sought. The one who seeks becomes the one sought after. And here we start to find that the true seeker in this story, the, the seeker with a capital S, is really Jesus. And the one who is being sought out, who's being sought after, is Zacchaeus. And so Jesus comes to the tree. He comes to Zacchaeus. And without being told his name, Jesus speaks to him. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay in your house with you. That word to stay in his house describes abiding there, dwelling there, uh, sharing a meal there. That's really the idea. Today I must come and, and eat with you in your house. Jesus says today, today I must do this. There is a sense of urgency about this. We can't wait any longer. 
We must meet together. We must eat together. He says, I must, I must come to your house. It's interesting. Jesus uses that language of I must or something must happen. That same kind of grammatical construction is used to describe events that are central to the divine plan of salvation. Things that must happen to accomplish God's saving purposes. So back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer many things in Jerusalem. In chapter 24, looking back on what's happened, that Christ must suffer and then enter into his glory. That word must points to divine necessity, a divine plan of salvation. Jesus says he must abide in Zacchaeus' house. Now why? Why must he do this? Why is this part of the divine plan? Why is there this divine necessity here? Well, Jesus is going to explain down at the end of the passage in verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Why must Jesus go to Zacchaeus' house? Jesus must stay with Zacchaeus. Not just out of some general act of kindness or, or friendship or because Jesus needs a bite to eat and figures Zacchaeus can provide that. No, he must do this because this is what his mission is all about. He must stay with Zacchaeus because he must seek and save sinners. This is what he came to do. See, Zacchaeus is a sinner. He is a great sinner. He is the chief of sinners even. And saving the Zacchaeuses of the world is exactly why Jesus came into the world. He must say with Zacchaeus because he must seek and save sinners. This is what he came to do. He came to find sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. And there's grow, no greater sinner. There is no one more lost than Zacchaeus. And so the point then is this, if Zacchaeus can be saved, then obviously anyone can be saved. If not just a tax collector, but the chief tax collector can be saved, then that means anyone can be saved. The Zacchaeuses of the world are his mission. And he came to find them and seek them out. He came to find them in the messiness of their lives and bring them into his kingdom. Having fellowship with people like Zacchaeus is what Jesus is all about. Jesus' ministry is a ministry to the sinful, to the lost, to the broken. And so he must go eat. He must go fellowship with Zacchaeus what his mission is all about. Well, Zacchaeus is thrilled at this prospect of having Jesus into his home. Verse 6 tells us he received Jesus joyfully. And this tells you not just something about Zacchaeus, but also something about Jesus. Joy seems to follow Jesus everywhere he goes. There's lots of joy around Jesus. And Zacchaeus gets to experience that joy, the joy of being befriended by Jesus. The, the joy of, uh, of being found and forgiven by Jesus. And so here we see Jesus doing the impossible. He squares the circle, as it were. He forgives the sinner. He declares the sinner righteous. Here, a wealthy man, a man who has it all, it seems, who is completely self-sufficient, it would seem, 
Such a man enters the kingdom. Jesus gets the camel through the eye of the needle. He brings Zacchaeus into his salvation and into his kingdom. Now the crowd seems to have some sense of what's happening here. And of course they don't like it. Indeed, they are scandalized by it. They despise Zacchaeus and other members of the ruling class because they see themselves as victims of their exploitation. Exploitation from people like Zacchaeus, the the, the ruling class. And so they grumble about it. Verse 7, they complain and they say of Jesus, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Their complaint here is against Jesus, not really Zacchaeus. It's it's really a complaint about Jesus. And they say he is eating and drinking with sinners. The crowds despise Zacchaeus because they see Zacchaeus as having gotten rich at their expense. And they are offended that Jesus would eat with him. They might even be accusing here, uh, they might even be accusing Jesus here of showing favoritism towards the rich. Luke says they grumble. It's the same word that would be used to describe the the Israelites and their constant grumbling against God in the wilderness. That's who these people in the crowd are like. Uh, Their specific complaint about Jesus' choice of dining companions, that specific complaint echoes uh, the words of the Pharisees and other places in Luke's gospel. So for example, in Luke 15, The Pharisees complain of Jesus, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Here the crowd becomes a crowd of Pharisees. They're under the influence, they're under the spell of the Pharisees. They're making the same complaint against Jesus that the Pharisees have been. The crowds are wondering, how can the kingdom feast? The promised messianic banquet that the prophets, prophets like Isaiah, foretold how can that messianic banquet that kingdom feast be enjoyed by people like Zacchaeus doesn't Jesus know what kind of people he's hanging around now by going to the home of Zacchaeus but look at how Zacchaeus interacts with Jesus in verse 8 Jesus has shown him grace obviously by seeking him out establishing this relationship with him, going to his home. Jesus has shown him grace, but it's not a cheap grace. See, Jesus comforts sinners, but he doesn't let sinners stay comfortable in their sin. Jesus will accept Zacchaeus as he is, but he will not let Zacchaeus stay that way. And Zacchaeus knows it. He knows if he's going to be with Jesus, this is going to require something on his part. He knows he must repent and redirect his life. He knows he must be transformed. And that's exactly what we see happening here. Zacchaeus demonstrates the fruits of repentance. He addresses Jesus as Lord, and he's not one of those people who cries out, Lord, Lord, but then doesn't do what Jesus commands. No, here, when he calls Jesus Lord, this is not an empty confession. This is a sign of his submission. And so Zacchaeus says, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and anything I have taken from anyone by fraud, I will restore fourfold. He makes a public declaration of repentance. Now, Jesus has not commanded him to give up half of his estate. 
There's nothing in the Torah, in the law, that requires giving up half of one's possessions. It seems, if anything, this is a spontaneous act on Zacchaeus' part. This is a commitment he makes as a result of meeting with Jesus. He's been shown grace, and so now he will show grace to others. Jesus has been generous to him, and so he will be generous to others. He knows that Jesus is going to sacrifice for him, and so he will sacrifice for others. He will sacrifice for the sake of the poor. He knows that really he's poor in spirit, and so he's going to identify with the economically poor as a sign of that. How he handles his wealth here shows you what he most treasures now that he has met Jesus. He has great earthly wealth, but now he is investing in heavenly treasure. He goes all in on the kingdom of Jesus. As a further sign of this, he makes a commitment to practice restitution. Giving half of his possessions to the poor may have been a spontaneous act of kindness and generosity, but the promise to make fourfold restitution, this is done in conformity to the law. And so if you go back to Exodus chapter 22, sheep stealing required fourfold restitution. If you stole somebody's sheep, you had to pay back four sheep. That's how it worked. You steal one sheep, you pay back four. You don't just make things whole by compensating for the one you took. You actually penalize yourself and give to the person you stole from. This comes into play in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, where the prophet Nathan confronts David about his sin. And Nathan tells King David a story of a powerful man who has stolen a lamb from one of his poor subjects. And David, hearing this story, gets very angry and he says, the rich man should pay the poor man back fourfold for the sheep that he stole. Of course, that's where Nathan says to David, thou art the man. He says, I'm actually telling a story about you. This is a parable of David's own sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. Well, here Zacchaeus puts himself in the place of David. He's the powerful man who has taken from his poor subjects. He knows he's far more powerful than the people he's been taxing. He knows what he has been doing is unjust. It's like he's been slaughtering their sheep, you know, their sheep for his own feasting. He's been slaughtering their sheep and feeding upon them. And Zacchaeus wants to make things right. He wants to align himself with God's law. He wants to get right with God. And of course, in doing so, Zacchaeus will also be reconciled to the wider community of God's people. He's been defrauding people. That means he's been taking advantage of the poor and the powerless. He's probably been extorting people. He's probably been making false accusations against them and dragging them into court. And here he repents and he commits himself to making things right. He's repentant and he's going to make things right. And Jesus approves of Zacchaeus' plans to, to make financial amends. And so Jesus sums this up by saying, today salvation has come to this house. And he calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. Salvation has come. Salvation means deliverance from sin. It means victory over sin. It means forgiveness. Zacchaeus now has Jesus' salvation. And he's now a son of Abraham. To be a son of Abraham means that he, is, that he now shares the faith of Abraham. That he trusts in God and God's son and God's promises, even as Abraham did. 
It means he's part of God's family, the family God promised to Abraham. It means Zacchaeus is receiving all that God promised to Abraham and to his children. Blessings that can be summed up as the forgiveness of sins and the transformation of life. Zacchaeus is no longer in bondage to sin. He can now fulfill his created purpose. He loves Jesus more than he loves money. He is restored to his place in the covenant community. And this is what the Son of Man came to do, to seek and to save that which was lost and to bring us home to the Heavenly Father. That's what the mission of Jesus is all about. It's interesting. I think there's another um, Old Testament passage in the background here, Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord condemns the false shepherds of Israel, shepherds who do not care for the sheep of Israel as they should have, the, the shepherds who should have looked after the people, but who are instead only concerned about themselves. But in Ezekiel, God promises to become the good shepherd to the people. God promises to be the shepherd of his people. God promises to send a son of man, a new Adam, who will be a true shepherd to his people. A true shepherd who will seek and save the lost. A true shepherd who will seek and save the lost like Zacchaeus. And now that good shepherd seeks and saves us as well. Today, Jesus comes to each one of us and he says, I want to eat with you. I want to dine with you. I want to share a meal with you. He wants to eat with us just as he ate with Zacchaeus. He wants to fellowship with us. He wants to bring us his salvation. And if we are trusting in Jesus as Zacchaeus did, if we are repentant, if we call him Lord and submit to him, submit to his lordship as Zacchaeus did, then we too can know his salvation. We can know that we too are children of Abraham. You know, we always say, you know, the gospel's for broken people, the gospel's for people who have made a mess of their lives, the gospel's for people who are sinners, and that's true. But that's not all. The gospel's also for people who look like they've got all their needs met. The gospel is for people who look like they have it all together, for people who look like they have everything, for people who look like they are self-sufficient. The gospel is for people like Zacchaeus as well. He was a man who had everything going for him. But he knew he was still lacking the most important thing. And so what does this story show us? The gospel really is for everyone. It's for blind beggars, like in the story right before this one. And it, it's for rich government bureaucrats like Zacchaeus. This salvation is for everyone. The meal we will celebrate at this table today is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. He came to seek and save sinners to seek and save the lost. Who is not lost? Who is not a sinner? What does this story show us? Jesus will accept you no matter what you've done. He'll accept you no matter where you've come from or what kind of mess you've made. He'll accept you no matter how you've hurt people or how you've been hurt. Now, Jesus is not going to let you stay where you are in life. He'll accept you right where you are, but he will not let you stay that way. He demands that you change, but he also empowers change. He brings that change into your life. So ask, is this me? Does this describe you? Are you trusting in Christ today? Are you seeking to repent of your sin and obey Christ today? Are you pledging obedience to Christ? Do you have a love for Christ's people? If so, 
If that's you, you are welcome to eat with Jesus today. Jesus is saying to you, I want to eat with you today. And, and you should eat from this table today. And when you eat of this table, you should be assured of his salvation, his love. You're just the kind of person he came to seek and save. Jesus came into this world because he wanted to eat with you. He wanted to seek you out and save you. And that's our hope in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks and praise for sending Jesus. We thank you he came to seek and save the lost, even people like us. May we know his salvation today. May we know the transforming power of his love in our lives. And may we learn to love him more than anything else. This we pray, giving you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.